Welcome back, listeners, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn. And today I'm very proud to be bringing a true American story. The story of the forgotten naval heroes of the Revolution. They're starting to get more press these days, especially the privateers. You might recall the recent interview we did with author Eric J. Dolan on his new book, Rebels at Sea, the story of the American privateers who did much to swing the tide of the war in our favor and act to keep the pressure on England's merchantmen while our own navy was still in its birth. The American Revolution wakened our young country to the need for a navy, but it would take years to put together a fighting navy that could challenge England or anyone else for that matter. During the American Revolution, we really had two navies, and I use that term loosely. One was the navy authorized by Congress, a navy which needed to be built ship by ship, or bought. And the U.S. Congress did not have much money to buy or build ships, nor did they have many experienced captains or crews who were able to take on the most powerful navy in the world. Then there was the privateer navy, the whole other story, of men in small ships with big guns who were willing to fight and capture British merchantmen for a share of the loot. These privateers acted as pirates, and it was probably for that reason that their names weren't often, if ever, featured in history books. Yet their dangerous work proved very useful to our winning the war against Britain. We'll give the privateers and our U.S. naval officers equal coverage here, because they were all heroes, mostly forgotten, but oh so critical to the winning of our freedom. They all showed extreme courage against tall odds, often taking on the most powerful navy in the world, the British Navy, and their incredible stories follow here. We begin with the story of our fledgling U.S. Navy, and then we'll cover the fascinating story of our mercenary Navy, the Privateers, which many critics say drew most of the talent, making it hard for our official Navy to get a fair start. And those critics have a point. Here's how our U.S. Navy, today the greatest Navy on Earth, got its start. When war broke out between the colonies and England, England was known as the Mistress of the Seas. Her great wooden ships went everywhere, and their colonies could send their merchantmen into any port open to them under England's protection. This was a huge selling point for American colonists who wanted to become English subjects. The opportunity to import and export goods under the protection of the all-powerful English Navy. When war broke out, colonists had to fight their own battles and look after their own ships at sea. The colonists owned many trading ships, but as they had been operating under the protection of England, they never had to build their own warships. And until the war was won, we had to rely upon our new Congress. We had always been governed by England. So our new Congress had the responsibility of raising money to field an army and a navy, a truly tough task, as there were no taxes being levied. They had little difficulty in gathering together a crude army, as patriotism ran high among many colonists who wanted to be free of England. Although during harvest time, it got harder to keep that army together. Trying to put together a navy, however, was a different ballgame. Creating a navy which could go up against a British man-of-war ship was like sending little David up against Goliath. If you had any chance of winning, you had to be smart and fast, define your mission, and pick your battles. Also, the expense of building ships, when the Continental Army couldn't even afford to pay its own militias, was nearly impossible. When the troubles began, 
the colonists had not a single ship that could take on anything in the British fleet. There was a crying need for naval protection of some kind. Coastal towns were being constantly raided by the British, who would approach on the incoming tide, then send smaller personnel boats into the harbors and the towns to steal whatever they could find, from money to furniture to weapons to valuables. By the time the militia came, the warship was gone. Somehow, some way, those coastal towns needed protection. Also, small American ships carrying troops and supplies needed protection. The best and only answer was to use privateers, hundreds of small boats fitted out for fighting. Congress saw the need for this as early as December of 1775 and agreed to issue letters of mark, meaning permission to attack British supply ships, commonly called merchantmen. These privateer boats were given license to keep a percentage of what they captured. When they captured ships carrying war supplies, that was a double bonus for our fledgling new country. They'd get the supplies and the ship. As a result of the threat from the privateers, the British man-of-wars were used more for guarding their commerce and less for raiding coastal towns. The First Continental Congress wisely made way for privateers, and the Second opened a path for the building of ships, the purchasing of others, and the organization of a naval force. Luckily for the colonists, there was one man among them, a Virginia planter, whose early life as an English seaman enabled him to advise the commission regarding the kinds of ships which could most help the colonists in the service of war. His name was John Paul Jones. He met with the commission in Philadelphia and gave them excellent advice as to the choice of ships and men for the Navy. He said that they could not hope to fight for the mastery of the seas against England. If they were smart, he said, they'd go after the merchantmen and stop the flow of supplies, not only to the New World, but to England itself. Only three nations, France, Spain, and England, he said, had nations strong enough to build big, powerful fleets, and it would take many years for America to do it. They did not have that kind of time, he said. American ships should not be too big or too small. What was needed was frigates. These should carry 32 to 36 guns, he said, and travel together in squadrons of four, five, or at best, six, and should be constantly kept in British waters. The objective? To constantly harass the British, especially off their coast, but on ours as well. Last of all, said John Paul Jones, one sharp encounter, with the prize being taken into one French port, would attract the attention of all Europe and raise the colonists' value in their eyes more than any land battle could do. The men in Congress were impressed, to say the least, and listened intently, smiling when John Paul Jones talked about the prize being taken to France, for they knew of the enmity between England and France, and were hoping that one day France would come to their aid in this war. On December 16th, 1775, Congress ordered the building of 13 frigates, but it would take a long and painful process to get them into operation and then keep them afloat. That story to follow here. We'll return with Forgotten Heroes, the naval heroes of the Revolution, right after these sponsor messages. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. 
I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. I have a special limited-time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001STORIES at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001STORIES at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. And now, back to our story. First, the story of the fate of the 13 frigates. Then the story of our ships which carried most of the fight on the sea against the British, as well as the story of our privateers. Five of those 13, five of those 13 frigates were fitted with 32 guns. The Raleigh, the Hancock, the Warren, the Washington, and the Randolph. Five with 28 guns. The Providence, the Trumbull, the Virginia, the Congress, and the Effingham, and three with 24 guns, the Boston, the Montgomery, and the Delaware. Some of you historians, and I know you're out there, might be able to tell me why the name Raleigh was picked for an American ship. He certainly didn't share American credentials with the likes of Washington and Hancock. I'd be interested in hearing your opinion. As most of you know, you can reach me, 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. Things did not go smoothly with construction, which was supposed to have been completed by March of 1776, because the builders were struggling to find the armaments to outfit them, and even more so to get the sailors and officers to manage them. The pay was greater for privateers, and everybody and his son wanted a piece of that action. So finding sailors and experienced officers was tough. Many of those frigates' names were soon lost to history, and here are the reasons. Several were scuttled or burned before they ever made it to sea. Those were the Washington, the Congress, the Effingham, and Montgomery. This all happened in the fall of 1777. The frigates were built in Philadelphia by the Eyre family, same spelling as Jane Eyre, E-Y-R-E, by the way. But British warships entered the port where they were being worked on, and the decision was made to scuttle them, meaning sink them, so the British couldn't get their hands on them. The British gleefully burned what remained above water. That was a stomach-churning moment for the American Navy. There would be many more. The Delaware did get into action and was attempting to slow down British forces coming after American troops. However, they were caught by an ebb tide and stranded on September 27, 1777. She was then captured and destroyed shortly afterward. The Virginia ran aground on March 31st, 1778, near Hampton Roads, while attempting to outrun the British blockade of the Chesapeake Bay. The Hancock succeeded in capturing three ships, but in July of 78, while pursued by a British squadron, she was captured by the HMS Rainbow and turned into the British man-of-war Iris. The USS Boston, a 24-gun frigate built by Stephen and Ralph Cross at Newburyport, Massachusetts, under the command of Captain H. McNeil, succeeded in capturing 17 ships, 
earning a special commission to carry John Adams to France in early of 1778. The Providence, under the command of Captain Abraham Whipple, captured 14 prizes, but both of these ships, sadly, were captured on May 12, 1780, one of the saddest moments of the Revolution, when the port of Charleston was surrendered by General Benjamin Lincoln to the British. Another cringeworthy moment for the Americans, involving the surrender of 5,266 sorely needed troops, 33,000 rounds of ammunition, and 49 American ships. Charleston was a disaster. The 28-gun Trumbull was stuck on a sandbar in the Connecticut River for three years until she was floated and soon entered into a legendary battle with the British ship Watt, a fight which historian Gardner W. Allen would describe as one of the hardest-fought naval engagements of the war. For two hours, the two ships traded shots at a range that was never more than 80 yards, and at times while being locked together. Both ships caught fire, and the British ship Watt, her hull, rigging, and sails, shot to pieces, was taken on water. The USS Trumbull hardly fared better. Captain of Marines Gilbert Saltonstall noted, We were literally cut all to pieces, not a shroud, stay, brace, bowling, or other rigging standing. Our main topmast shot away, our fore, main mizzen, and jigger mast gone by the board. Both ships broke off action to assess their damage. The Trumbull suffered eight killed and 31 wounded, while the HMS Watt had 13 killed and 79 wounded. The American Captain Nicholson was ready to pursue his foe, being in better condition, with one remaining mast. Already battered beyond belief, the U.S. frigate had to weather a gale on its return to Connecticut. Captain Nicholson was congratulated on his gallantry of defense against the Watt, but lack of money and men kept the Trumbull inactive until the first part of 1781. On August 8th of that year, the Trumbull sailed again with a 24-gun privateer and a 14-gun letter of mark to protect a 28-ship merchant convoy. Twenty days later, three British ships spied the convoy, and two broke off to give chase. The shapes of the British ship might have given pause to the Trumbull's little squadron. The fact being, the British had captured the frigate Hancock and privateer General Washington, known now as the HMS Iris and General Monk. The Trumbull's luck continued to worsen after an evening rain squall carried away the frigate's foretop mast and her main topgallant mast. Soon the Trumbull was trapped by the Iris and the General Monk. While Nicholson was ready to fight, most of his crew was not. Only one-fourth of them responded to his call to beat the quarters. The crew that did respond battled the Iris for ninety grueling minutes and took the worst of it. Then as the General Monk moved in, Nicholson saw he was beaten and raised his colors. The HMS Iris towed the captured Trumbull to New York, and the last of the thirteen U.S. frigates was seen no more. But the battle against the British fleet was far from over. The states had a huge role in providing fighting ships, mostly privateers, and Rhode Island provides a great example. From early 1775, British men of war, especially His Majesty's frigate Rose, preyed on Rhode Island shipping and annoyed the tiny colony's coast. The Rhode Island General Assembly ordered the Committee of Safety to fit out two ships to defend the colony's shipping, 
and ordered a committee of three to obtain the vessels. They immediately chartered Sloop Katie from John Brown of Providence and Sloop Washington at the same time. They then appointed Captain Abraham Whipple, who had won fame in the burning of a British sloop just a few years earlier. As commander of the Katie, they made him commodore of a tiny fleet. Before sunset the same day, Whipple went out and captured a tender to the British warship Rose, which must have infuriated the warship Rose. In the months to come, the Katie's name was changed to Providence and placed under the command of Captain John Hazard. The Providence and the Wasp soon sailed to the Bahamas and captured Fort Hopkins at Nassau, winning a huge supply of gunpowder for the Americans. Returning to the U.S., the ships in that fleet captured four large British ships, and by May 10th of 1776, John Paul Jones assumed command of the Providence. By the 21st of August, Jones had captured a British brigantine, Britannia, sending it to Philadelphia with its prize crew. Jones was soon transferred to command the Ranger, which he operated in British home waters in 1777 and 1778, making audacious raids on the English shore. He attacked the forts at Whitehaven first, then landed on the Scottish shore. He then met the British sloop of war, the Drake, and after some sharp fighting, he captured her and brought her with great pride into a French port, fulfilling the promise he had made to the U.S. Congress just a year before. The Drake was a Dutch fighting ship, and the eyes of the French opened in amazement when they saw her sailing in under the American flag. Jones was soon capturing English vessels and gathered a squadron of captured ships. He now commanded his flagship to Bonham Richard, which was given to him by the French King Louis XVI in answer to his request. On the 23rd of September, 1779, Jones fought one of the bloodiest engagements in naval history with the 44-gun Royal Navy frigate, the Serapis. Although his own vessel was on fire and sinking, Jones would not accept the British demand for surrender, tendering the famous answer, I have not yet begun to fight. Jones realized that with his ship badly wounded, the only way he was going to win this fight was to board the Serapis and fight it out man to man. Skillfully maneuvering until the two boats were side by side, and just as the Bonhomme Richard grazed the Serapis, the fluke of one of her anchors caught fast in the mizzen chain of the Bonhomme Richard. Captain Jones lashed the boats quickly together, and in this way made the grapple he had tried so hard to effect, and the British Captain Pearson had tried so hard to avoid. Captain Pearson knew the fight was over, and he struck his own colors. The next day, the Bonhomme Richard, badly wounded, sank, but Jones was in command of the Serapis now. The battle had taken three hours. According to some historians, Jones remained appealing as much for his actions as for his personality. British cap books, the equivalent of our American dime novels, pictured Jones as a ruthless marauding pirate, akin to Blackbeard. His attacks on British ships were often sudden and bloody. The vision of his being a swarthy scalawag was still in vogue by the time Kipling wrote of him. However, the Americans who knew him, like Thomas Jefferson, called him Little Jones, although probably not to his face. Jones was always well-dressed, carried himself properly, and with decorum. He had a slight Scottish brogue and Celtic features. He was born John Paul in Kirkabright, Scotland. He entered the British Royal Navy at the age of 13 and commanded a ship at the age of 23. While in Tobago, 
His crew mutinied, and he killed the leader in self-defense. But the crew was ready to lie that he killed him for no reason. At that point, he fled to Virginia, and was considered a fugitive by the British. He soon added the last name, Jones, and made America his home. During his entire career as a commander, his bravery and courage was never questioned. He was without a doubt the greatest naval hero of our young navy in the Revolution. In 1788, Russia's Empress Catherine the Great appointed Jones rear admiral in the Russian navy, and he saw a lot of action in the Black Sea. He left the Russian service in 1789 and moved to Paris, and he was buried in 1805. A few years later, President Theodore Roosevelt had his body interred and moved to the Naval Academy Chapel at Annapolis, the goal being to give a true American hero a proper memorial. And now it's time for you to meet another American hero, Privateer Captain Jonathan Harridan. Privateers were crucial to the American war effort. They commanded over 1,600 boats and ships, 26 times as many as the Continental Navy's 64 vessels. It was a risky but profitable business. 78% of privateer ships were captured or sunk by the Royal Navy, making it a very dangerous profession. John Adams was a well-known supporter of privateers, and he wrote, This is a short, easy, and infallible method of humbling the English, preventing the effusion of an ocean of blood, and bringing the way to a conclusion. It is by cutting off supplies, not by attacks, seizures, or assaults, that I expect deliverance from our enemies. During the American Revolution, Captain Jonathan Harridan captured dozens of British merchant ships at sea. Most people had only heard of the privateer's bold exploits, but on June 4, 1780, thousands had a ringside seat for one of the most dramatic engagements of the Revolutionary War at sea. Harridan was known to prey on British fears of Yankee privateers, outmaneuvering larger foes, and often capturing them through sheer nerve without firing his shot. If he ordered his helmsman to steer for a vessel, his crew assumed they had the prize in the bag. Harridan's exploits on sea put him alongside John Paul Jones as an American naval hero. According to one story, an American ship's boy imprisoned on a British brig of war spied a sail on the horizon. He began to sing and dance. The sailors asked him why. My master's in that ship, and I shall soon be with him, the boy said. The sailors asked him who his master was. Captain Harridan, the boy said. He takes everything he goes alongside of, and he will soon take you. The boy ended up being correct. Jonathan Harridan was born in Gloucester, Massachusetts, on November 11, 1744, and went to work for merchant George Cabot of Salem as a boy. When the revolution broke out, he was commissioned lieutenant of the Tyrannicide, a brigantine in the Massachusetts State Navy. That ship was destroyed in the ill-fated Penobscot Expedition, which was a turkey shoot for the British. Hardin then took command of the General Pickering. The vessel was a letter of mark ship, a merchant ship with official permission to sail as a privateer when the occasion warranted. It was a smallish frigate with 14 six-inch guns and 45 men and boys. The General Pickering carried weapons and cognac from France and rum, sugar, chocolate, and molasses from the Caribbean. Along the way, Harridan captured a number of enemy merchant ships, making himself and the ship owners rich. In April of 1780, Harridan set sail on the General Pickering 
with a cargo of sugar bound for Bilbao, Spain, a favorite rendezvous for privateers. In the Bay of Biscay, the General Pickering overtook the British privateer Golden Eagle, which had 22 guns and 60 men. It was dark, and Harridan decided to bluff. "'This is an American frigate, sir,' he shouted to the speaking trumpet. "'Surrender, or I will strike you with a broadside.' The Golden Eagle, a victim of outsized fears of American privateers, fell for the ruse and surrendered. Harridan put fifteen of his men onto the Golden Eagle and sailed into Bilbao Harbor with his prize sailing alongside. Another ship was sailing out. It was the Achilles, a British privateer with forty-two guns and a hundred and forty men. It recaptured the Golden Eagle at dusk, but a battle would soon begin with it. By morning, word broke out that a British and an American privateer were about to do battle, within sight of land. Thousands flocked to the coast and got closer to the action in fishing boats, cutters, rowboats, and sailing vessels. Harridan maneuvered the General Pickering between the Achilles and a line of shoals and raked the British vessel with a broadside fire. The wind died down, and it took two hours for the Achilles to work herself into position and escape the American fire. The General Pickering, with her cargo of sugar, sat so low in the water that the larger ship couldn't rake her. A witness said that General Pickering looked like a longboat next to a ship. Another said Harridan stood exposed as shot flew all around him, as if he were amid a shower of snowflakes. Cheers rose from the flotilla of boats and the spectators on shore as the General Pickering raked the huge Achilles. Finally, the Achilles captain was able to bring the ship about and open fire on the General Pickering. After three hours, the General Pickering ran short of ammunition. Harridan ordered his men to load the cannons with bar shot. This consists of two iron balls connected by a solid rod. Wicked stuff. They flew in a violently spinning manner and tore through the Achilles rigging, smashing the decks and sending the gun crews from their stations. The flight of bar shot persuaded the Achilles captain to retreat, and the General Pickering recaptured the Golden Eagle. By then the flotilla of small boats had pressed in closer to the General Pickering. At the close of battle they escorted the victor into the harbor. The crowd swarmed to his landing place, caught up Captain Harridan, and carried him through the streets on their shoulders, giving him a hero's welcome. Harridan stayed in Bilbao for two months, refitting the ship, taking on new cargo, and selling the Golden Eagle, before heading back to Salem to enjoy another hero's welcome. And he didn't arrive empty-handed. He brought three captured prizes with him. The grateful owners of the General Pickering then gave Harridan an engraved silver hot chocolate pot and two silver cans, now at the Peabody Essex Museum in Salem. Harridan continued capturing British merchant ships. Almost exactly two years after the battle with the Achilles, Harridan, aboard the General Pickering, encountered the Caesar. The two ships fought for two hours, but neither gained the decisive advantage. Said Harridan, both parties separated, sufficiently amused. But finally his luck ran out, but only briefly. When he sailed into the Dutch Caribbean port of St. Eustatius, British Admiral George Bridges Rodney's fleet captured the General Pickering and her prizes. Herod managed to escape, and he returned to privateering in command of the Julius Caesar. The mostly forgotten Revolutionary War hero died in Salem, Massachusetts, on November 23, 1803. His obituary in the Salem Gazette 
lauded him as one of the most able and valiant naval commanders that the war had ever produced. Then there were privateers who turned privateering into a very lucrative business, and one of these men was Nathaniel Tracy, who amassed an impressive privateering record during the Revolution. Between 1775 and 1783, he was the principal owner of no less than 23 letters of mark, defined by some as a license to steal, and 24 privateers, in addition to scores of other vessels engaged primarily in trade. Tracy had his own very effective privateer navy, and he kept score, capturing 120 British ships, the cargoes of which sold for a whopping 3950000 worth about $90 million today. Privateering seemed to get no respect in the colonies in the years of the Revolution, one reason being that those who stood in judgment believed that true Americans fought for the cause of liberty, not the cause of lining their own pockets. One of America's founders was very much for the cause of liberty, but also saw the value of privateering, enough so that he jumped into it at the first opportunity, and that American, and this might surprise you, was Benjamin Franklin. His story, as it pertains to privateering, begins with a pale, slight, 29-year-old Irishman named Luke Ryan, who was a small-time Irish smuggler operating between Dublin and his hometown of Rush, Ireland, about 15 miles north of Dublin. In 1779, Ryan headed out on his own privateering mission, attacking American, French, and Spanish shipping. He returned to his hometown in April of 1779, with no prizes, but lots of contraband, namely kegs of French brandy and Dutch tea. Customs inspectors seized his cargo and brought it to Dublin, along with most of Ryan's crew, except Ryan, who had been ashore when the ship was seized. Ryan was no coward, but he had no intention of giving himself up or of letting his men stay for long in Black Dog Prison in Dublin. He gathered some armored men to break his crew out early on the morning of April 12th, instructed them to commandeer a few boats, with which they were supposed to go out to the harbor where his ship, the Friendship, was anchored, where they would then overpower the twelve guards on that ship, and then sail it to where Ryan was waiting at the harbor at Rush. Ryan knew his days in Ireland were then over, so he set his sights on becoming an American privateer. He renamed the Friendship the Black Prince and got in touch with a few investors. They had some contacts, and soon Ryan heard that Ben Franklin, who was then in France as an American ambassador, was looking for privateers who could sail from France. There were some issues. Franklin did not have the power to issue a letter of remark to a vessel captured by foreigners, much less Irish smugglers. If the captain was American, however, that changed the picture. And by sheer luck, an American shipmaster named Stephen Marchant was in Dunkirk and looking for a command. Franklin was not as interested in lining his pockets as he was with securing American prisoners from British prisons. If Franklin had his own privateers, and they captured British sloops, he could use those prisoners as bargain ships to secure the release or trade of Americans held by the Brits. So Franklin jumped on the opportunity. Through the spring and summer of 1779, the Black Prince sailed on four cruises, capturing a remarkable 34 prizes. It also returned more than 50 prisoners, which wasn't as many as Franklin had hoped. Many more prisoners had been released because Ryan, who co-commanded the fleet, did not want to be bothered with manning the prize ships and sending them to Dunkirk. 
Whenever the Black Prince struck along the coast of England, Scotland, or Ireland, it left a terrorized local populace. It was Ryan who was commanding the ships, and not Marchant. And during the fourth and last cruise, Ryan finally blew up at Marchant and told him that he'd been commanding it all along, and Marchant could go home. And Marchant went back to America. When Franklin was informed of what had happened, instead of being mad at Ryan, as you would suppose, Franklin congratulated him with a gift. Attached to the gift was a letter saying, I am very much pleased with your bravery and activity in distressing the enemy's trade and beating their vessels of superior force, by which you have done honor to the American flag. Then Franklin wrote to John Jay, President of Congress, boasting about the success of his privateer's recent voyages. Franklin then commissioned a second privateer, which he named the Black Princess, and a third called the Fear Not. From March through August, Franklin's privateers captured more than 60 prizes, mostly off the coast of England. By 1780, Franklin was finished with privateering. He had not been as successful as he had hoped in capturing British prisoners, and he needed to turn his attention more toward diplomacy. Franklin's foray into privateering had cost the British 114 vessels burned, scuttled, or ransomed, caused soaring British marine insurance rates, and havoc to their coastal trade, and the discomfiture of the British Admiralty, not to mention the fear caused by the constant coast raids, which only created more frustration with the King's War against the Americans. Captain Ryan was caught, and all his possessions were taken. He was given a King's pardon, thanks to pressure to do so, but was still confined to debtor's prison, where he died in 1789. Some of you may be surprised at Benjamin Franklin's obvious attachment to privateering, but the biggest promoter of the often bloody sport was none other than John Adams, who went so far as to write a letter to Jacques Genet, the head of French Ministry Foreign Affairs, imploring him to persuade French newspapers to print accounts of the glorious combat and cruise of Captain Daniel Waters and his privateer, Thorne, who really was doing newsworthy privateering in 1780. On Christmas Day of 1779, Waters attacked two New York privateers, the Sir William Erskine and the Governor Tryon, two of the most successful privateers operating for the British Loyalists. According to the Thorne's first lieutenant, when the Americans came within hailing distance of the Governor Tryon, its captain, George Stebbins, asked Waters what right he had to wear the 13 stars in his pendant, to which Waters replied, "'I'll let you know presently.' Then he gave the Tryon a broadside which was quickly returned, not only by the Tryon, but by the Sir William Erskine as well, which was positioned on the other side of the Thorn. So Thorn was in the middle of a deadly crossfire. For an hour the three vessels fought, repeatedly hammering each other with cannons and raking each other with musket fire. Waters was wounded in the knee less than an hour into the battle, which is when the men in the Tryon, seeing that the American captain was wounded, tried to board the Thorn. They, however, as one of the men of the Thorn later put it, were soon convinced of their error, receiving such a warm and well-directed fire from our Marines. And when the loyalist Captain Stebbins saw his men running around with pikes in their backs instead of in their hands, he decided to call them back. Although heavily damaged, when the remains of their attacking crew returned, the Governor Tryon renewed their attack, but the Thorn proved indomitable and the Tryon surrendered. 
the first lieutenant of the Thorn, assessed that there must have been great slaughter aboard the Tryon, as blood could be seen running out of the scuppers. Waters, having defeated the Tryon, set out to get the Sir William Erskine, ordering the Tryon to follow. Another battle, this one taking two hours, ensued between the Thorn and the Sir William Erskine, until the Sir William Erskine, nearly destroyed, struck her colors. The Governor Tryon, taking advantage of the Thorn being involved in that battle, tried to sail away, and finally did escape, reaching British-held Antigua, with twenty men killed and many more wounded. There has not been a more memorable action in the war, John Adams told Genet, and the feats of our American frigates and privateers has not been sufficiently published in Europe. It would answer valuable purposes, both by encouraging their honest and brave hearts and exciting emulations elsewhere, to give them a little more than they've had of the fame that they've deserved. There was more in Adam's message, but you get the idea. Genet complied, and an account of the Thorns' encounter with the Governor Tryon and the Sir William Erskine was published in the Mercure de France. On another subject, whaleboats became an effective means of harassing British shipping but they weren't always commanded by men whose loyalty to the Patriot side could be counted on. Connecticut Governor Jonathan Trumbull, whose popularity at the time was at a high mark, as you've already witnessed by the naming of one of our Navy's first 13 frigates in his name, issued more than a dozen privateering commissions to whaleboats, granting them permission to seize British shipping in Long Island Sound and adjacent waters, and also to pillage those parts of Long Island under British control. And seize, and seize loyalist property on land as well. Many of the whaleboats lived up to their commissions, one of the most successful being the three whaleboats belonging to Ebenezer Jones of Stamford, the Rattlesnake, the Viper, and the Saratoga, each crewed by ten heavily armed men and boasting a single swivel gun. They played hell with British merchants, capturing over 30 vessels of all shapes and sizes, but not all the commissioned whaleboats stayed loyal to the Patriot cause. In April of 1781, New York Governor George Clinton wrote to Governor Trumbull that Suffolk County residents loyal to the American cause were being attacked and divested of their property. This was confirmed by none other than Lieutenant Caleb Brewster, who many of you will remember from the TV movie Turn, as being a member of the Culper Spy Ring. His job was to gather intelligence on British Army operations in New York City for General Washington. And he had now witnessed a new round of atrocities committed by some of Trumbull's commissioned whaleboat operators. Two of Trumbull's whaleboats had landed on Miller Place, Long Island, during August of 1781, at midnight, and marched to the houses of Captain Ebenezer Miller and his brother Andrew, both of whom had fought for the American cause and were known patriots. As they were confiscating Ebenezer's arms, his son William, hearing the commotion downstairs, raised his bedroom window to see what was going on, and one of the whalemen shot him in the head, killing him. Meanwhile, at Brother Andrew's house, the attackers didn't even ask for their weapons, striking Andrew with the breech of their gun as soon as he opened the door, breaking the bone over his eye, tearing the eye all to pieces, and breaking his cheekbone, before leaving him for dead. Both houses were then ransacked, and nothing was reported on what they did to the inhabitants therein. Brewster said that the same group of whalemen had crossed the sound a number of times on similar raids. In one instance they hung a patriot, an army officer named Richard Thorne, upside down, 
to force him to divulge where he kept his money, until he passed out, and then they cut him down, and when he came to, they questioned him again, then slashed his throat. They performed similar crimes on other patriots. More pressure was placed on Trumbull to revise his commissions, which he did. But the rage continued even after Yorktown, as the whalemen turned criminal, robbed and killed innocents, although the rage did lessen somewhat, according to one source. Despite their slow start, the Continental Navy was able to command 60 warships operating in the Atlantic during the Revolution. Some were built as warships, others had been converted merchantmen, leased from private owners, loaned by France, or captured vessels that were put into service as American ships of war. The cost of keeping this fleet on the water was around $13 million a year, a staggering sum for the time. This represented about 16% of the government's expenditures during the war. Congress had no power to levy taxes and had to rely on printing basically worthless money and on foreign loans. As for new ships, the wood on a ship takes time to season, and time was precious. As a result of sailing with unseasoned wood, many ships developed leaks. Captured ships, often damaged from battle, were also expensive to repair. Our Continental Navy, whose mission sometimes had them going head-to-head with the giant British men-of-wars, did manage to capture 12 British warships, most of which were fairly small, but still in good shape and easy to convert. These proved very valuable when used against British merchantmen, and here the tale was entirely our government's, not shared with privateers. Many were lost, partly due to inexperienced captains, partly because they were outgunned, and by Yorktown in 1781, our American fleet had only nine ships still afloat, with a total of 164 cannons. The American Navy's only true battleship was the America, and it took six years to build, and was launched in 1782, when most of the fighting was over. As many of you know, Yorktown didn't end at all suddenly, although it did ring a loud death knell for the British. There were more years of misery for the fledgling American Navy, but persistence and patriotism, as well as the second British attempt to win back the colonies in 1812, were a prime motivator. The formal end of the Revolutionary War came on September 3, 1783, when the Peace Treaty of Paris was signed. It should be noted that while the American army lost an approximate 6,800 men on the field, British prison ships, such as the notorious Jersey, accounted for the deaths of nearly 12,000 American patriots, nearly double the number of men who died fighting on the field. Almost immediately after the war's end, Benjamin Franklin changed his opinion of privateering, declaring that it should be abolished, saying, The practice of robbing merchants on the high seas was a remnant of piracy, adding that although it may be accidentally beneficial to particular persons, it is far from profitable to all who engage in it or to the nation that authorizes it. Basically, he described it as a training ground for future robbers and drunks who preyed on society. Franklin's attempts failed to persuade the British that privateering should be ended, but he did persuade Jefferson to end the practice with any countries that agreed to stop the practice if war with America was to occur. But on June 26, 1812, the U.S. again turned to privateers, who did most of the fighting and capturing of British ships at sea. Another history for another time. I hope you've enjoyed our story, Early America's Forgotten Heroes 
the naval heroes of the revolution. We always appreciate reviews, so if you enjoyed these stories, please do take a moment and send us a kind review. We also appreciate your sharing our show with others. Always be on the lookout for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, where we share short stories twice a week, on Wednesdays at 5 p.m. Eastern and Sundays at 12 noon. This show is extremely popular and has been for a number of years. Also take a moment and enjoy 1001 Radio Days and listen to some good Golden Age Radio Cop and Detective shows. You'll enjoy 1001 Radio Days if you give it a try. Until next Sunday at noon, everyone, this is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and this is 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries podcast. Stay safe, and we'll be back soon. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio.